Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined, as always, by Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. Avi, how are you? Good, good. I'm like, you know, fluttering over here, excited. It's going to be great. Hannah, are you also a flutter? I have read Fellow Note and agree with it. <laughs> well, okay, so we're already yeah. sort of beating you over the head that this is going to relate something to Fib Flutter. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the relationship between hyperthyroidism and atrial fibrillation. I don't know if we'll get into the flutter piece so much, but certainly atrial fibrillation. And more specifically, Hannah's going to walk us through the question of why hyperthyroidism might cause AFib in addition to sinus tech. I mean, we've all seen sinus tech, but we've also probably all heard this association with AFib. So Hannah, uh, you just finished internal medicine residency. I suspect at some point during those years, you got interested in this. Like, Like, what happened? Yeah, so Tony, as you're pointing out, I am now a fellow, and I am neither a fellow in cardiology nor in endocrinology. Um, so this so this has makes perfect a, sense. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm still a generalist at heart. I still want to keep that. This question really came to me sometime in the middle of my last year of residency, and I remember so I was editing this like reference material for um, our incoming interns, and one of the things that I was editing was a a list of basically like what to send, a primer on AFib. And something about editing things on a page really forces you to take a look at every word and try and justify why it's there. And so I remember seeing always, you know, send a TSH if you're working up new AFib. And I thought, why is that? And why particularly would hyperthyroidism cause AFib rather than causing sinus tachycardia, which we know that it does, but to say, why, you know, for example, in pheochromocytoma, in, in other endocrine abnormalities that I associate with sympathetic function, I don't always see AFib. So why, why in this case? Have either of you two diagnosed someone with new AFib due to hyperthyroidism? Or hyperthyroidism due to new AFib? Either way. I, I so mean, like diagnosing yeah. the hyperthyroidism with the new AFib? I'll tell you, I've sent... Dozens and dozens and dozens of TSHs. I don't think I've made that the diagnosis like, oh, they have new AFib and I've I've uncovered hyperthyroidism unless they was like otherwise overtly obvious. But even then, I don't I can't think of a case. But it's probably happened. I don't know about you, Avi. I once diagnosed a patient with thyroid storm from we sent it because they had sinus tachycardia that we couldn't explain. But I certainly, like Tony said, I've sent it a lot, like off, I think as like a reflex, like you said, you know, this is something that we do sort of reflexively. Uh, but no, I don't think so. Yeah. After sort of Hannah said she was going to look this up, I, I was reading on up to date, not that that's necessarily the arbiter of everything, but they do recommend checking TSH. It's not like all the TSHs I've sent were not without merit. Yeah. Uh, so thank you up to date for affirming my, my choice of sending. Yeah, and that's definitely seems to be the recommendation for most places. I, I remember once as a medical student, and it was the case that they brought all of the medical students to meet the patient because it was so classic, and they wanted all the med students to meet her. Um, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. So, but it's stuck in my mind. I think the first thing that we probably should do is use a little bit of larger scale data to establish that the risk of AFib in hyperthyroidism is real, that there is some basis behind that practice that we have. So we know from pretty large cohort studies that the relative risk of AFib in overt hyperthyroidism is about three to six times above anyone's sort of standard risk. In addition to that, so that doesn't necessarily link 
sort of causatively or directly. But what we know is that if you have subclinical hyperthyroidism, your risk also increases and that that risk is essentially linear with your free T4. So as your free T4 goes up from the lower end of the normal range, you go from sort of a baseline risk. Once you're in the middle, you have about a 1.2 hazard ratio. Once you're at the high end of the reference range for your free T4, you're at 1.45. And then if you're overtly hyperthyroid, like I said, you're three to six times more likely. So these are still relatively low risks, but we know that they exist. Okay. So it sounds like more severe hyperthyroidism, thyroid storm, things like that, you know, that's associated with higher rates of AFib and higher risk for that. Does that mean it's like, this is all maybe like a free T4 problem, like acting on the heart? And I'll say one of the things about this is that uh, free T4 is the thing that we measure in addition to TSH. And so that's a limit in understanding some of these bigger studies. So when I think about how to break all of this down, I think about sort of two axes. The first is the now, and then the second is the later. Um, So the now being what are the changes that we see in acute hyperthyroidism that predispose to AFib? And then the later being what are sort of these like longer term effects of hyperthyroidism on the cardiac conduction system and the longer term risk of AFib. And then I'll also say dividing that now phase out a little bit because there is sort of a lot of physiology there. I think about the sort of hemodynamic big picture sympathetic effects. And then I think of the electrophysiologic effects. So now and later, yeah. Yeah, so th- there's a couple different axes, right? We got now, later, and then we got within the now, the hemodynamic and the electrical. So we have like kind of like dealer's choice. We can start with a few different places. Um, I mean, now, right? got to start know, now. I would assume we're starting now. <laughs> <laughs> there is no time like the present. <laughs> um, so, and I think this is the part that feels a little intuitive to me, having sort of thought about this in this sort of like thyroid storm kind of a context or trying to think about it in this this acute hospitalization context. So the first, and I think the thing within now that's helpful to think about is the sympathetic effects, these sort of like larger scale, clinically observable hemodynamic effects. And that lines up with what a lot of us know about hyperthyroidism. So hyperthyroidism is a sympathetically active state in which, so mediated by T3, actually, there is an increased sensitivity to beta-1 adrenergic M2 muscarinic receptors, both of which mediate heart rate. So this overall, the beta-1 signaling leads to an increased heart rate. And then with this increased heart rate, you get a decreased atrial refractory period. Decreasing that effective atrial refractory period in itself creates sort of like an afibogenic environment in that... (laughs) Afibogenic. Excellent. (laughs) Still bringing in the Ankh fellow here. Uh, But having this decreased... Because the sympathetic tone is there, the beta-1 adrenergic tone, and the increased heart rate is there, decreased effective uh, atrial refractory period is there. If an ectopic focus develops, the idea is a reentrant wave or a spiral, which is called a rotor wave can develop and that can be sustained by these atrial myocytes, which have this decreased effective refractory period because they're ready to conduct essentially a reentrant impulse earlier than they normally would be in the cardiac cycle. So even just these sort of bigger picture clinically observable things, the increased heart rate, the sympathetic tone, create the environment for AFib to develop. But it feels like that might be, you know, necessary, but not sufficient, perhaps, right? Because every tachycardic, like sympathetically stressed patient, not all of them get AFib, right? Like, um, it seems like there, maybe there are other, there must be something else going on too. 
Yeah, I think- it makes me worry about going for a run because like uh, during this run, I'm going to have like a, a, a decreased refractory period and I'm going to start getting atrial fibrillation. Which is exactly what the cardiologists don't want you to do. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think the other uh, the other good litmus test for this episode is like, okay, but does it happen in a FIO? Uh, <laughs> like, in that lots of things cause sinus tachycardia. So we've kind of set the stage with all of these sort of bigger picture clinically observable things. I'll also say there's decreased heart rate variability for from the decreased vagal tone overall. And the last sort of big picture clinically observable thing that happens there is that if you get high output heart failure from being very hyperthyroid, you can also see dilation of the atria, which is another sort of big macroscopic clinical structural thing that can make AFib more likely in the sort of now phase. But with all of that in mind, these are all the things that we can easily see. Now the thing that's a little more harder is to think about the electrical component. And really the the place where we know a lot about this is from animal data, looking at the atria and then the cells of the pulmonary veins and how they respond to thyroid hormone. So I think the first one and sort of illustrative of a lot of studies in this group, this sort of class of studies, uh, is from 2002 by Chen et al. in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Jack, in Jack. Not Jack 2, just Jack. Um, um, my, my hematology clinic like group listens to this podcast, so I don't want them to think I've, I've abandoned hematology. I mean, there might be a Jack too. There's a lot of cardiology journals out there. (laughs) There's two C's in Jack. Yeah. True. We should, we should propose that to them. Um, so this group, uh, this study in 20, uh, 2002 by Chen et al. So they took atrial and pulmonary vein cardiomyocytes from a rabbit and they just incubated them with T3, which I feel like is just a brilliant way to understand what sort of the response cellularly is, which we know should correlate. So they found that uh, if you essentially by doing this induce a hyperthyroid state in these cells, both the atrial and the pulmonary vein cardiomyocytes had a higher heart rate, which sort of corresponds with what we see clinically. But the pulmonary vein cardiomyocytes also had an increased rate of early and late after depolarizations. These are spontaneous events apart from depolarization. And of none of the control, if you don't incubate with T3, none of the control cardiomyocytes had these events. We'll include a picture of sort of the waveforms in the show notes. So all of this contributes to our understanding of the classic idea of how atrial fibrillation develops from ectopic foci of electrical activity in the pulmonary veins and identifies that incubating in T3, so exposure to T3, directly increases the rate of these ectopic foci developing. I I can't get around or get past the idea that a patient with hyperthyroidism is, is basically incubating in T3. Like, so experimentally, we have these rabbits incubating in T3, but like patients with hyperthyroidism are also incubating in T3. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get that out of my mind. But nonetheless, do we like know anything about how this happens or why this happens? It's true. And I think there probably is some conversion for exactly what uh, concentration versus what is physiologically seen of <laughs> incubating in T3. I suppose we're all sort of incubating in, in all of our serum electrolytes too. <laughs> So we we have actually a lot of really great data. There's a lot of research into this about specifically which ion channels are altered in the cardiomyocyte as a result of hyperthyroidism. So there's a lot of channels that are involved, multiple um, calcium and sodium-related channels. And for the sake of not just like listing all of them off, I want to just mention one that I think will take our listeners back to their MCAT eras. 
which is the sarcoplasmic and reticulum calcium transport adenosine triphosphate, uh, or ATPase, also known as CIRCA, which may be familiar. So this is the pump that moves calcium from the cytosol of the cell to the lumen of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Uh, we sort of, I always associate it with contractility, um, but it's directly upregulated by T3, um, and its regulatory component, which is phospholambin, is downregulated by T3. And so this also contributes to the contractility of these myocytes. Okay, so we have to move to the later soon, but I, I feel like we got to like put a, a button on the now. So let me see if I have uh, some rudimentary understanding. So T3, which we're all, I'm going to use the word marinating, but incubating works too. So we're all marinating in T3, but patients with hyperthyroidism are particularly marinating and incubating in it. This directly affects the pulmonary vein cardiomyocytes, and it does this via changes in the ion channel expression. But ultimately, you have an increased number of after depolarizations, right? So T3, more after depolarizations. And these impulses are conducted through the atrial cardiomyocytes, which you sort of said earlier in sort of the hemodynamic component, they have higher sympathetic tone from that T3, and so they have a higher heart rate and a decreased atrial refractory period. So like there's that milieu of hemodynamically of a, of a decreased atrial act, uh, refractory period, and then you have this sort of electrical milieu from the after depolarizations within the sort of cardiomyocytes in the pulmonary vein, and that sort of conspires to cause atrial fibrillation. Am I getting this right? Exactly. And so some of these pieces are there in other sources of sympathetic tone, right? Like beta-1 activity, increased heart rate, potentially decreased effective refractory period. Some of these things are there in other reasons for sympathetic tone, but the changes to the ion channels and the increased after depolarizations, especially in the pulmonary vein myocytes, those seem to be mediated by the T3 specifically. And it sort of sounds like with hyperthyroidism, you're sort of more likely to get induction of AFib and sustaining, right? Sort of remaining in it because of these changes, right? Like as opposed to someone who maybe has some like PACs, but they don't necessarily like go into full atrial fibrillation. Is that like a fair summation? That And I think that's what we can probably theorize based on this sort of physiologic data. I didn't find like an amazing reference on like how persistent is AFib in people with untreated hyperthyroidism. Like what is the AFib burden that links those two things? But sort of physiologically, that seems to be what it is. Yeah, but it's actually a fascinating question to think about, right? Is the rate of atrial fibrillation in hyperthyroidism more likely to be persistent versus paroxysmal, right? Because you have both the initiation and, and the maintenance. And I, I don't, did you come across anything to suggest that there's a difference in paroxysmal versus persistent in AFib? Well, I think that brings us to the later. Ah, the later. <laughs> I say, is it now time for later? <laughs> it is time for later. Now is later. And then after this, I do want to talk a little bit about hypothyroidism because I think that's also so Of course, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? So what I mean when I say later is that we know that patients with longstanding atrial fibrillation of any cause develop fibrosis, and then this fibrosis develops or predisposes to more AFib. And so I wondered if this was also a component of TSH and sort of thyroid hyperthyroid-mediated AFib. There's not as much clear data here. So like I didn't find an amazing paper on paroxysmal versus um, persistent AFib. But we do know that there is some component of fibrosis that is a part of hyperthyroidism, that sort of long-term later piece. And thyroid hormone overall is really helpful for decreasing matrix metalloproteinase activity and decreasing cardiac fibrosis. 
But hyperthyroidism is also an inflammatory state in which the heart microenvironment specifically is marinating in all these inflammatory markers. So TNF-alpha, IFN-gamma, IL-6, all of these are elevated. And so we know that the cardiomyocytes are in this hypermetabolic state that is associated with increased oxidative stress because of all this inflammation. And so those two things are theorized to explain why some fibrosis might occur in longer-term uncontrolled hyperthyroidism and lead to a increased disposition to AFib sort of in this longer-term, larger timescale. That actually makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, I don't think we could get away with sort of alluding to the idea of inflammation being at play because like I've learned in my, um, God, now, so I guess middle of career, basically inflammation <laughs> is affecting every disease. Like the idea that, oh, in, atrial fibrillation is an inflammatory state. Well, I guess, I guess it is because what isn't an inflammatory state? One of the interesting things of this is that they don't distinguish between sort of like autoimmune, like different types of autoimmune causes right. of uh, hyperthyroidism. But in this case, we know there's usually antibodies involved. All right, so you kind of um, alluded to this idea of hypothyroidism, teased it a little bit. Um, and, and so I guess one question that emerges is whether, like we do this, right? We treat patients with hypothyroidism with levothyroxine, which gets converted to T3. Does that supplementation lead to increased risk of AFib? So Tony and Avi, you know this. After I came up with this idea for this episode and started looking into it, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. So then I was, I had the same question, oh my gosh, am I going to develop AFib from this? Uh, so from this levothyroxine. So there's a lot of smaller studies which have some limitations uh, in how to interpret them. And then there's some very large population studies. And the very biggest study that I could find was from the Health Improvement Network, a THIN, which is from the UK. And it's just this massive database on health outcomes from the, the United Kingdom. And so they reviewed over six, uh, 160,000 patients with hypothyroidism and over 800,000 TSH measurements. Oh God, um, that is an aggressive endocrinologist. <laughs> like the entire the entirety of the national health system is like... <laughs> seems to be captured in this kind of data. It's it's honestly amazing. And so between the range of undetectable TSH to the TSH over 10 cohort, the confidence interval for the hazard ratio of AFib never crosses one. So we'll include sort of the figure, but basically to say that all of these different cohorts of TSH, it never crosses one to say that there's a significant change in the risk of AFib. There are some smaller studies which have shown that if you have an undetectably low TSH, so under 0.03, um, you have a higher rate of dysrhythmias, including AFib. So we can't say for 100% certain, and there, there may be something that's lost in just sort of cohorting people in this way. But in very large population data, we don't see a, a super strong significant difference. Yeah, I was asking my wife about this because um, she, she is a, a brilliant endocrinologist who who taught me at one point that in patients with thyroid cancer who have hypothyroidism, you specifically treat them with levothyroxine to a lower TSH. You want to, it's called, I guess, TSH suppression, with the idea being that the thyroid stimulating hormone can also stimulate the thyroid cancer. So the idea is that like this is a sort of subpopulation of patients with hypothyroidism on levothyroxine who are purposefully at higher doses of levothyroxine and maybe a little bit like 
hyperthyroid as a result. And I was able to, just before the episode started looking, it seems like those patients are at increased risk of atrial fibrillation, suggesting that maybe there are situations where we do do this to patients. And I don't know the data around TSH suppression, so I can't say like the risk-benefit ratio supports it, but I'm not sure if that's compelling, but it, it does seem to support the idea that levothyroxine therapy that we give could potentially also have a risk as well. Because of, of course, it's converted to T3. That's the whole point. Yeah. And I think the thing to think about or to the thing to, to say is that in that big THIN study, we're looking at people who are, by virtue of being in the study, connected to medical care and presumably undergoing monitoring with the goal of keeping their TSH within sort of this standardized range. So the other thing that I did was go looking for case reports of what happens to people who overdose on levothyroxine. And it's a bit of a mixed bag. So in some, the patients remain in sinus rhythm. And then in others, I did see one case report of a patient who had unfortunately taken 10 milligrams total of levothyroxine. So if we think a typical dose would be around, you know, 100 to 150, maybe micrograms. It's a pretty significant dose. And she developed a, a syndrome consistent with thyroid storm, including AFib. And she actually was treated essentially like thyroid storm. So she got PTU to stop conversion of T4 to T3. She got propranolol. She got hydrocort. And so from the case reports and from that study, it does seem that it's possible, even if we're not seeing it on this big connected to healthcare within our typical goals population. I think there's also sort of a big circle here if we think about like amiodarone being used to treat atrial fibrillation causing thyroid dysfunction and then this giant rhythmic circle turning, but you know- I feel like it's usually the cardiologists and the pulmonologists who have this like circle where they're like combating each other, but now it's like the the cardiologists and the endocrinologists who are like sort of in the ring going at it. Amiodarone, hyperthyroidism, atrial fibrillation. Yeah, which came first. Yeah. But so we've, you know, we've talked a lot about hyperthyroidism causing arrhythmias, you know, hypothyroidism, right? I sort of think of it as having the opposite physiologic effects as hyperthyroidism. Does hypothyroidism, like, is it protective against atrial tachyarrhythmias at all? Sadly not. Um, so, I, you know, I wondered this, like, does being hypothyroid make you, like, especially sinus rhythm? Particularly <laughs> sinus rhythm. Like, what is the opposite of aphid? Like super duper um, sinus, sinus rhythm. <laughs> yeah, it's like sinus bradycardia. Um, Pretty and, much. Yeah, which we do think of in the sort of severe hypothyroidism. And then we also see QTC prolongation in severe hypothyroidism. But interestingly, so I mentioned it earlier that thyroid hormone is protective against fibrosis or downregulates a lot of fibrosis with the matrix metalloproteinase, which is to say there's inflammation that causes fibrosis, but thyroid hormone itself also helps overall in decreasing these matrix metalloproteinases that cause fibrosis. So unfortunately, in hypothyroidism, what we see is that there is fibrosis via other mechanisms. One of the sort of interesting studies about this is that a group of researchers looked more into where in the axis it is by using mouse models of primary versus secondary hypothyroidism. So primary hypothyroid, the organ is not making the hormone, and so the pituitary works and it's making TSH, and the TSH is high. Only those patients had the higher risk of developing arrhythmias. And they use that to suggest that suppressing these repolarizing potassium currents by TSH leads to electrical remodeling and increased risk of arrhythmia. And then other people have sort of theorized around fibrosis pathways in hypothyroidism. So, you know, I guess one question that that sort of arises from this is whether these findings have any effect on the way we should be treating patients. So any... 
We don't make recommendations on this podcast, but any recommendations? Yeah, it turns out this is a hot topic in the uh, thyroid plus AFib literature, which is a, a burgeoning Which fairly is vast. Yeah. Oh, so vast. <laughs> um, oh, my God. I mean, 800,000 uh, TSH measurements, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, and as we were talking about, like, these are two conditions which affect a lot of people. So it makes sense that there is so much out there on this topic. And usually we don't treat subclinical hyperthyroidism. And this is where a lot of debate is overall. Um, and so it's it, there's overall just like not clear guidelines on what to do in people who have subclinical hyperthyroidism and new AFib. And then the other piece that I just thought was interesting, really no current implications for current treatment, but there was a really interesting paper about AFib in general, in which they proposed that using these medications that we typically think of as reducing structural remodeling of the ventricles overall, so our sort of like GDMT medications, the authors wondered if this could improve structural remodeling in the atria that predisposes to AFib. And so they studied actually a succubitral valsartan in rabbits to test this hypothesis. So not ready for prime time, not ready for humans, but an interesting concept um, overall. Well, I mean, we do use that drug in humans, but we may not use it for specifically for this indication. That's true. Um, I guess before we close, I'm curious, because obviously the literature is vast, anything else you came across that you think the listeners should know about? I just wanted to mention one other paper, which is a really great review by Aguilar et al. in the Journal of Cardiovascular Research, which is from the ESC. So if this has sparked in you an interest in cardioendocrinology, endocardiochronology, cardioendocrinology, and specifically electrophysiology and all of that, there's this beautiful review out there that goes through all of the endocrine axes and what the sort of current evidence is. It's relatively recent um, for their connection to AFib. And so um, we'll put the link in the show notes. But if you're curious about all of this, there's just like a lot out there that is really interesting to think about. Very cool. Well, Hannah, do you have any take-home points for us? Yeah. So hyperthyroidism does cause AFib. And the mechanism for that, one is sort of the now phenomena. So uh, T3 acutely causes both sympathetic effects cardiovascularly and hormonally in terms of the electrophysiology of the atria and the pulmonary veins that predispose to AFib. And then long-term, it's likely that there is some fibrosis that is potentially implicated in long-term and uncontrolled hyperthyroidism, which may make people more predisposed. In hypothyroidism, we have less information overall, um, but it's possible that with very high doses of TSH suppression or of very high doses of levothyroxine, that there is some conversion to T3 and implication of AFib. And that uh, even in fellowship, one should stay <laughs> curious <laughs> curious about the, uh, what is it, the heart squiggles? What does Dr. Glockenflecken call, call the EKGs? I don't think anyone's asked me to look at a single EKG in fellowship so far. Really? Oh, come on. It's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come, but not yet. It's been two months. Give it time. Give it time. <laughs> There's some QTCs to look at. There's a lot of Zofran you guys give, so yeah, true. there are going to be some QTCs. I'm trying to go to the outro. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians. Thank you.